last week, the title of the message was The Warning of the Holy Spirit, Don't Miss God's Rest. I'm stressing that because now today the title sort of is a part two, but a little different. So in Hebrews chapter 3, last week, the warning to not miss God's rest. So now today, we're going to call this the invitation of God to enter his rest. So last week, we heard kind of the negative. You know, be careful and watch out for this and don't miss God's rest and unbelief. He basically said there's a formula. If a person has unbelief in Jesus Christ, unbelief from their heart in the things of God, the truth of God, the call of God through the gospel to be saved from their sins in Jesus, if they let that unbelief carry on, they will develop a hard heart. And there was this warning of, he quoted in the Old Testament, be careful if you hear God's voice today, don't harden your heart. So the warning is don't miss God's rest. Well, today we're going to pick up and say, okay, well now what about the positives? How do we enter God's rest? How do we know what God's rest is? So he's going to give us the invitation today from the Lord to enter into his rest. So what what is God's rest. Let me take a moment to say this because it's going to be the whole theme. What is God's rest? I will explain it a little bit more as we go through the message, but let me say this real briefly so we're all on the same page. When we say the word rest and when he says it here, we are not talking about you're tired, like physically tired and you need to sleep or have rest and recovery. That is not what we're talking about. This is a spiritual type of rest. The word rest that he's going to use here meant you were working, you were doing something, and then you stopped doing it. And once you stopped, you entered into a period of rest. So spiritually speaking, he's going to say there's things that we do spiritually that are called work, effort, self-effort. And he's going to say you need to stop. You need to cease that work and rest, rest in the Lord. So, again, last sermon is the warning to not miss God's rest because of unbelief in Jesus' gospel offered. But today, he'll continue and say, okay, but what else does that mean? How do we enter God's rest? The idea is also this. To rest in the Lord is to give up on your self-effort to save yourself. It is to no longer trust in your own intuition, your own efforts, your own merits, to make yourself safe and secure spiritually. Now, before I get to any more, I want to stop for a moment and let's read a section of this passage, pray, and and I'd like to continue. So if you would, please join me in standing out of respect for the reading of God's word. And I just want to read the first section, verses 1 through 4. He says, Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear, lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. For good news came to us just as to them, but the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened. For we who have believed enter that rest, as he has said, as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest, although his works were finished from the foundation of the world. Let me have a word of prayer. Lord, thank you for everyone that took of their time to be here. I ask that you would now guide my thoughts and my mind and Holy Spirit you would speak truth through me it's not about me would you would you step me to the side and just speak truth clearly to every heart and mind here and God would we all leave here today just being in more awe of what you've done for us through Jesus 
And I ask for everyone here that you would give them a special blessing for having been here. Would you help them grow from being here, Father? Would you encourage them? And if there's any here today that is confused or struggling in their faith, would today be the day that they could get clarity and see peace from the Lord finally? In your son's name I pray, amen. Thank you, you may be seated now. Let me say a few more introductory words about this theme of rest that really struck me as I was studying this message. We have a restless society. I said that in our last message. Again, not tired. I mean, people are tired. We're always tired at times. But I'm talking emotionally, spiritually, psychologically. There's so much unrest. And to say it in a more different, clear way, I think people in general struggle with a lack of fulfillment in life. They just are struggling to find out what should their life really be about before they face death? What should the purpose of their existence on earth be? Why are they here? What should they make their life about? And there's going to be this bouncing back and forth. Maybe they'll try one thing and it doesn't fulfill them, so they move to another thing, and it fulfills for maybe a year or a few years or a few months, but then they move to another thing. People are restless, a lot of restlessness. Have you ever built a puzzle? You probably have. We all have probably. But have you ever been in a situation I always found myself in? You're putting the pieces together this puzzle. I'm talking the, the bigger ones. Let's say 100 plus, 400 pieces. The pieces are small. You're putting this puzzle together. You've worked on it for weeks maybe. You get down to, to the end and you're missing that one piece. You can see the picture of the puzzle and the one piece that's missing, only the one piece, you can still in your mind imagine what the whole picture of the puzzle looks like. But you're missing that one piece. You're 99.9% you're .9 done with the puzzle, but you're not really done. And you've worked hard for weeks to get to this point, and you cannot find this missing piece of the puzzle. Now then, all of your work is frustrating because you look at this puzzle, and it looks wonderful to a point, but your mind is constantly focused on the missing part. And it throws the rest of the picture off. And now you're frustrated. It bothers you. You search frantically for this missing piece of the puzzle, but you can't find it. I never could, at least. The puzzle you worked on so hard to finish to see the picture come before you there. It's now unfulfilling. In fact, maybe you're angry now because you did all this work and it's not coming together. Maybe you could make the piece. Maybe you could find cardboard and you could cut it out the shape of the board and you could try to paint it some way that the box shows how it should be. You, you could try that. You could try to do it yourself. But even if you did that, probably you would put the piece there and you would clearly see it just doesn't work. It's, it's not the original piece I'm missing. Your self-effort would just not really get you there. You could spend extra money and buy another one just to have that one piece. But again, that would annoy you and frustrate you that you had to do that. I think life is kind of like that for many people. They're out there putting together pieces of their life, these little puzzle pieces. They think that they have this picture in their mind of how they could make their life look, and if their life would look like that picture, it would fulfill them and it would be perfect and they would be fully happy. So they set out on life collecting their pieces to put the puzzle together, hoping for it to come together the way they want. But then they hit a point when they realize it's not coming together 
like they had it pictured in their mind. The pieces aren't fitting together. What I mean more specifically would be this. They think that everything they need to bring them rest in life, joy, fulfillment, happiness, peace in their souls, they think they haven't figured out what that should look like, but they keep going through life and as they're putting it together, they hit these points in their life where they still say, I'm missing a piece here. I was happy for a moment, but now I'm not. I was fulfilled for a moment, now I'm not. I had rest for a moment, but I don't. I don't ever have lasting rest. I'm missing a piece of the puzzle in my life. These puzzle pieces in life are many different things. They are jobs, a certain financial level. Maybe people think if they hit a certain status, a certain level of income, then that will get them the perfect picture of their life. It can certainly be relationships. People think that a certain person that they really love and they're all about, maybe if their life is wrapped up in them, then that will bring them joy and fulfillment. It can be possessions. And even religion. We could go on and on. People seek for rest in their souls through these pieces of the puzzle of life. I think a lot about this. I'm in my, my doctoral work in ethics, and a lot of my studies are around the LGBTQ community. This community has been of great interest to me because I, I didn't fully understand them, so I wanted to understand them better and to see why, why do they, why do they um, adopt these identities or, or change genders? Like, what's going on here? And the more I study, the more I've become convinced that these people are modern-day proof of severe restlessness of the soul. They're searching for fulfillment and peace, but they have been lied to by society and Satan that if they take certain lifestyles, then that will be their answer. They will find fulfillment. But it sells them a bag of goods that doesn't deliver. That is a proof, though, that there's restlessness among a community of people that think they can find answers to fulfillment in other things. Not just them, but think about drugs or alcohol addiction. Addiction. Why do people get involved in them? There's many answers, but think of this. I believe often people are looking for a type of rest. So they take drugs and they get high. Why? Because it provides a temporary escape from the reality that they're in that they don't like, that they don't have peace about. People get drunk because it provides for a moment. They get to leave the real world and live in a drunken state or a high state. But then the drugs wear off, the alcohol wears off, and they have to go back to the real world. So they seek it again and again and again because they need to keep finding this rest. People try to find rest in jobs and career. They think maybe if they get some sort of dream job, then they'll be happy. They'll find joy in life. We're bad about this as Americans. We often ask a stranger, I know you've done this, I do it all the time. You find someone you meet, you're introducing yourself. One of the first three questions, it typically goes like this. What's their name? And then number two or number three is going to be, what do you do? And we don't mean, like, what do you do? And they say, well, I walk, I sleep. That's not what we mean. They know what we mean. They mean, what do you do for work? Because I think as Americans, that, that's, that's somehow our identity. We think our careers are who we are. So we're all about, what do you do? I, I really want to know what you do for work because that says to me, then that's who you are. But that's not the case. But we think that way, though. Well, then someone sets out to have their dream career, their dream job, and all of a sudden things happen, and maybe they lose it. Well, now they've lost their rest. They've lost their fulfillment. People maybe think if I earn another 5000 or $10,000 this year, then I can have rest and joy and fulfillment. But you make more money, what usually happens is that means you have a job that just requires that much more work from you. So now you're making more money, 
that you thought that would make you happy, but you have less time with family. Now you're not happy about that. You have more stress. Different religions even. Religion tries to offer the answers. Muslims have an answer, Jehovah's Witnesses, Mormons, Buddhists. We could go on and on. Everybody has an answer for, well, look, here's the meaning of life, and here's how to find fulfillment. Just real quick, I, I knew some Muslims in college. They were nice gentlemen. We would work out together, and I asked one of them one time. They kept talking about keeping this feast of Ramadan. And I asked him, what's this all about? And he explained, well, we keep these feasts on our religious calendar because we're commanded to. And the more he explained, the way I understood it was, these Muslims believed that to get to heaven, to enter paradise, to be right with Allah, you had to keep his law, his commands. And that included keeping feasts and dietary laws. And I asked him, I said, how do you know you'll get there? And he said something to the effect of, well, we hope we will. Well, how do you hope you will? Well, if we, if we keep doing these things, if we faithfully follow them, then maybe we'll get there. But they had no assurance that they could. It was a hope. It had no rest. Buddhists even say that the key to fulfillment is to actually give up on life and seek nothing from this life. The point is, there's all sorts of answers. Even as Christians, we're not immune to lacking rest in our souls. We can struggle as Christians to keep our feelings in fulfillment and rest. We know we're saved by God's grace through faith in Jesus. We know we don't work for our salvation, yet we can let the cares of this world creep in and we can find ourselves in the same struggle as non-Christians, lacking fulfillment and joy and rest. We can believe in Jesus, yet live our lives without rest because we're putting our identity in something else besides Jesus and who he says we are. Again, people need rest. I believe they're looking for rest for their souls. We all need it. So the author is going to tell us today, so how do we find it? Where is this rest found? How do you get it? This rest comes directly from God. It doesn't come from any government, doesn't come from any economy, doesn't come from even a relationship. I love my wife, I love my kids. Okay, but they are not the key, the source of my fulfillment. It must be in Christ. And that will be sort of his point this morning. We can only find rest directly from the creator of the universe. So this morning, I want to look at this. What is God's invitation to enter his rest? So point number one, let's start here. Here's the first thing he'll say. There's a promise of God's rest. God gives us a promise of rest and faith secures God's rest. So look at verses one through five with me here. He says, therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. So right out the gate here, he says, okay, there is a promise that God gives all people. And this promise is that you can rest. You can find rest in your soul in the Lord. It's a promise. But notice this wording. He says, while the promise remains or while the promise still stands. Now, what's important about this to see is that means this invitation to rest is not going to always be here forever. It is a promise to rest, but it's only here for a window of time. And that window will close one day. The door will shut one day, and there will no longer be a call from God, an invitation to rest. So his point is, you need to know that today, while it still is available, 
take advantage of it now because tomorrow it may no longer be available. Next year, it may no longer be available. We don't know when it will no longer be available. But he points out here, there is a promise that you can rest in the Lord, but it is a temporary invitation. It will close one day. God has promised rest though. The word promise means to make a pledge or an oath. I like this definition I found. To obligate yourself to take action. So he's saying to us, there's good news for people, and it is this. God, the creator of the universe, looks down on our lowly human existence and says, I will give you rest. In fact, I have obligated myself to give you rest. It's as if God says, I've sworn an oath by my own authority that I must provide you rest. He's obligated to do it. Not for everyone, we'll get to that in a moment. But he has obligated himself to provide rest. But again, it is only for period of time not forever that window that promise will close for people to enter that rest now the word rest i've already said this before but it means to work and you stop and now you enter a period of ceasing your work and you're resting now that you're no longer laboring what is he getting at here he's saying and the name jesus i want to be clear the name jesus will not come up in this passage however if you've been with us throughout the weeks so far This whole book is all about who? It's all about Jesus. The whole book. It's all about Jesus is greater, greater than the angels, greater than Moses. Jesus is our great high priest. It's all about Jesus. So we're not going to see his name, but if you read chapters 1, 2, and 3, it is clear he is talking about resting in Jesus Christ. That's how you find God's rest, is through resting in specifically Jesus. So what, what could he mean by rest? Again, like I was trying to say earlier, People are working, and I use work metaphorically. People are working to find rest. They're working to find fulfillment in all sorts of ways. Trying to find it in relationships, in substances, in other things in society. On and on we could go. You can try to find fulfillment and rest in anything that's out there. A physical thing, a non-physical thing. Just fill in the blank. It's anything that we think will provide us lasting joy and fulfillment. And we can reach that point where we say, now my life has ultimate purpose and meaning. And I'm no longer trying to figure this whole thing out. I've found that answer. That's seeking rest. People look for it everywhere. He is offering for us here the answer to say there is this idea of rest, ultimate fulfillment and rest. But it's only found through the Lord. How do we get it? Through Jesus Christ. Again, I want to stress this for us as believers. You may be sitting here today and say, well, of course I'm resting in Jesus. I don't believe I'm saved by doing good things. But think with me for a moment, though. How many times, even as Christians, have we had severe seasons of discontent, depression, struggling to just find joy and contentment in life? We have. We've all been there probably to one degree or another. I have certainly been there. My wife can tell you, I was telling her that preparing for this message was very, very hard for me because throughout my whole life, ever since I was a kid, all I wanted to do was join the military. That's all I ever wanted to do was be a service member. And I never did. I always had a reason why. I went off to college and I said, well, when I finish college, then I'll be a service member. I met my wife and got married. And I said, well, I'll be married for just a year, then I'll be a service member. And well, then I got overweight and couldn't join, so it never happened. But I, I would for years, years, I've, I'm 34 now, and still occasionally I'll tell her, like, 
what if I'd have joined? I really wanted to serve our country as a service member, and I never did. And I finally have realized of lately, that is a noble thing to serve. There was nothing wrong with that. But my issue was I had turned that idea of being a service member into my identity. And because it was my identity, I never did it. So I've had constant feelings of, I, I missed it. I missed out on something in life that could have been mine. I, I, and so I would live life. And yes, I'm a Christian. I believe in God. I believe in Jesus and all these things. But yet have these moments of, but, but what if? Or my life lacks a certain purpose to it. It lacks a certain meaning. And what was happening to me was, spiritually speaking, I was wrongfully putting my identity in this, this dream career of being a service member. We can do that with anything, though, is my point, even as a Christian and miss out on feeling rest in our soul. Because the point is, he's going to say, the Christian must find their identity only in Jesus Christ. I love my wife, I love my family, but my life is not at the core of it. My identity is not that I'm Ashley's husband. I am Ashley's husband and love being her husband, but that's not the core of my identity. Because then what happens one day if I lose her? If she's the core of my identity, now I'm left thinking, I have nothing. My children, I love them. I love being their father, but they're not the core of my identity. The core of my identity must be Jesus Christ. Now that explains how I can be a faithful husband, how I can be a better father, but I, I will never lose Christ. So that must be the core of our identity is his point. Only then can the Christian really find rest. So again, let me back up here. God is promising rest to all people. How do you enter it? Faith is what secures God's rest. Rest is only available for a period of time. He gives a promise, but only for a window, only for a season, and then that window to enter it will close. Now he goes on here and says, here's a warning again to not fail to enter God's rest. If you look at uh, verse 2, he, or excuse me, the end of verse 1, he said, let us fear that any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. So there is a, a danger, a warning to make sure that you and I are always on guard to say, I need to make sure I don't come short of entering God's rest, that I don't fail to finish the race, that I don't fail to miss out on God's rest. Verse 2, for good news came to us just as to them, but the message they heard did not benefit them. Now the us and them, real quick, if you are here last week, I'll just say it again and we'll move on. The us and them are Old Testament Israel. When they left the promised land of Egypt, they're in the wilderness and they grumbled and complained all the time against Moses. And there was that specific event where they kept telling Moses, God and you have brought us into this desert to kill us of starvation and we're going to die of thirst. They had no water. They were just crying out. And Moses went to God and said, what am I going to do with these people? They're ready to kill me. And God said, I tell you what, you're going to strike the rock and water will flow out. But then God said something. That generation of Israelites, they're not going to enter the promised land. They're too disobedient. They're too stiff-necked. They complain all the time. The point was not that they asked for water. There's nothing wrong with asking for water in a desert. That wasn't the issue. The issue was their hearts were a heart of unbelief. They thought God had brought them into the desert just to kill them off. God said that's why they're being punished. They lacked faith in the Lord. They had unbelief. So he's referring back to that to say they had good news preached to them just like we do. Their good news was that they could journey to the promised land and find rest. Physical rest. Theirs was physical good news. Physical rest in the promised land. That area we call Israel. But he says for us today, there's the same message, but it's spiritual. God preaches good news that everyone can find 
spiritual rest for their soul, forgiveness of their sins. The danger is, he says in verse 2, they heard the message of God and yet rejected it in unbelief. They lacked faith. So they missed out on the promised land. They missed out on rest. So his warning is you and I spiritually can also miss out on God's rest, miss out on the promised land, so to speak. How so? Look at verse 2 again. He says, the message they heard did not benefit them. Well, how come it didn't benefit them? Because they were not united by faith. That's the key. They were not united by faith with those who listened. Now, depending on your translation, it may say something a little different. Some versions say the people themselves lacked faith. For example, the New American Standard reads, but the word they heard did not profit them because it was not united by faith in those who heard. So some translations say the people that were complaining and grumbling, they lacked faith, and that's how they missed out, is they did not unite faith with the message, so they missed out. Other translations like the English Standard Version that I have, but let me read the New International Version. It takes a little different view. It says, For also we have had the good news proclaimed to us just as they did, but the message they heard was of no value to them, and here's the difference, because they did not share the faith of those who obeyed. So one view says the people lacked faith. The other translations say, well, it was people had faith, but the ones that grumbled and complained, they weren't united with them, so they missed out. All that to say this, they end in the same conclusion. Why did some people in Israel miss out on the promised land? Because they lacked faith in God's word, faith in his promise. Instead of having a heart of faith, they had a heart of unbelief, and they missed out. Either way you, you take the translation, it's the same conclusion. The disobedient people lacked faith. They did not unite what they heard with faith, so they missed out. So his warning is for us here today, too. Don't miss out. Don't come up short on entering God's rest. How would I miss out? By lacking faith, by having unbelief. That means this then, how do I enter God's rest then? By having faith. So if you miss out on it by not having faith, the opposite's true. You enter God's rest by having a heart of faith. So look at verse 3. He says, For we who have believed enter that rest as he has said, As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest, although his works were finished from the foundation of the world. So God offers believers rest here. How do I enter this rest, again, by faith, you have to be a believer. A believer in what? A believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. He says here as an example, God created the world in six days, and on the seventh day, Genesis 2, 2 says, on the seventh day, God rested from his work. Then in the law, you read one of the Ten Commandments. Remember the Sabbath, keep it holy. The Sabbath is the seventh day. And God said this to Israel, because in six days I created the heavens and the earth and rested on the seventh he picks up that idea to say, look, God is also a resting God. Yes, he worked, but then he rested. He ceased from his labor. So the point then is don't miss out on God's rest. Join him in rest. But how do I miss out? By a lack of faith. God warns that disobedient people will not enter his rest. The point is this. People do not automatically enter God's rest by default. People are not just born and live their lives and God brings them into his rest automatically. That's not how it works. The charge he's saying here is you can miss out on God's rest by not believing, by lacking faith. So how do I enter it? By having faith. Faith is the road to travel to enter God's rest. Well, what is faith? Faith is when you have full trust and belief that leads to complete reliance upon someone or something. So 
what do we have to have our faith in? Faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Faith in what? The good news of Jesus Christ. Well, what's that? I'm glad you asked. The good news of Jesus Christ is what Bruce was sharing with us about the Christmas season. The Christmas season is not the crucifixion of Jesus. We don't talk about that. But nonetheless, the birth of Jesus was so he could one day go to the cross. What does that mean? God looked at sinful humanity and said these people have rebelled. They've committed treason against the creator of the universe. They must be punished for their sins. But God said, however, I will send my own son. God will take on flesh. He will come down, take on human form, be a human represent humanity before God. That's why Jesus had to be born and become a human. He had to represent humanity back before God as a priest. It says if he'll do that and he represents them, he lives the perfect life that they were supposed to live but didn't, then when he sacrifices himself on the cross, God said, I will accept that as payment for people's sins. He rose again three days later, proving he was God, he was innocent, and he has power over death itself. Then Jesus said, anyone who believes in him faith in him, complete trust, complete reliance, complete belief in that he died for your sins and he rose again and that you too can have forgiveness and eternal life. That's the good news. So he says you have to have faith in that message, faith that that's real, that that's true, faith that yes, I'm a sinner, but God can save me and give me spiritual rest through the Lord Jesus Christ by his death on my behalf. That's how one enters God's rest. Faith is the opposite of works. Working for your salvation would be saying, I believe in God, I believe I'm a sinner, but I think then if God gives me a list of things to do, as long as I do them faithfully, then I'm okay, then I'm forgiven. Uh, working for your salvation would be, well, I think, and people say this a lot, they sort of have a mental scale. You ever seen the, the legal scales to represent you know, justice and order, and it's got one heavier on the one side and it weighs it up and it can go back and forth? I think sometimes people think that way too. They'll say, well, how do you know you're going to heaven? How do you know you're right with the Lord? Well, I think because if you balance out my life, my good and my bad, as long as my good outweighs my bad, then surely I'm okay. But the real question becomes, well, how do you know that maybe the five bad things you did are not so bad that they're worth more than the ten good that you did? You don't know is the point. You can't sit back and say, well, if I do enough of this, then it balances out. You really don't know that. That is a lack of rest. That's a lack of faith. That's trying to work and earn salvation. His message here is you cannot do that. Rest only comes to those who basically say to God, God, I give up. I can't do it. I can't save myself. I can't find rest. You have to give it to me. How do you get it? Through faith. Faith in his son that he died in your place and he can be your savior. So again, God gives a promise of rest, eternal rest, Eternal reward, eternal heaven, but in this life you can have spiritual rest, spiritual fulfillment, peace in your soul that you belong to God and you're forgiven. You get it through faith. So the second point, well, what's the purpose of God's rest in verses 6 through 10? The purpose of God's rest, he's going to point out here, don't think it's physical. It's beyond physical rest. So look at verse 6. He says, since therefore it remains for some to enter it, meaning enter God's rest, and those who formerly received the good news, talking about Israel again, failed to enter because of disobedience. Verse 7, again he, that's God, appoints a certain day, saying today, through David, so long afterward, in the words already quoted, today if you hear his voice, 
do not harden your, your hearts. Let me pause there. So the, sec- the first point, God gives a promise of rest through faith. Second one, what's the purpose of God's rest, though? It is beyond the physical. He is sharing with us here, back in the Old Testament, Israel was promised the promised land. And God told them, if you get to this land, a physical land, flowing with milk and honey, he said, he said things like, I'll give you rest from your enemies. And he meant literally that they would be a nation that has other nations around them and they leave them alone. They wouldn't invade their borders. They wouldn't steal their stuff. They wouldn't burn their villages. They wouldn't steal their children and make them slaves. God says, no, I'll provide you actual rest in the promised land. I'll bless you to the point other nations come to you and want to know who's your God because you must be doing something right. That was the promise they had that they could claim. But he says they missed it. But here's the point he's making for us, though. Don't think that that rest of God was just physical. Because if you look here, he says in verse 6 again that it still remains for people to enter God's rest. If the point of entering God's rest is just physical rest, well, then we would already be there. But he says we're not already there. It still remains for us to enter God's rest because a proof he gives is David said in Psalm 95, today if you hear his voice, don't harden your heart. Why? So you can enter God's rest. He's making a logical case real quick to say this. If God's rest was meant just for Israel in the Old Testament to have physical rest in the promised land, then how could David say a thousand years later that you still need to not harden your heart to enter God's rest? Logically, then, there's still a rest to enter. And then he goes on to make another case and say in verse 8, if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. In the book of Joshua, God told Joshua to take them into the promised land and have an actual military campaign, wage warfare. They were to drive out the Canaanites and conquer that land. His point is that was not to be the final rest for people, to simply make a journey to some physical piece of land and say, now we can be restful here. No, because if that was the point, then how could David and all these other prophets come along after Joshua's time and say, you still need to find rest in the Lord? Here's his point. God's rest is beyond the physical. He's talking spiritual rest is what he means by the purpose of God's rest. He says in verse 9, so then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God there still remains a rest for the people of God to have. Well, I'm making this point to say it's not physical because don't get caught up and think, well, if I enter God's rest, then all of life works out for me. I have all the finances I ever need. I have all the physical health I'll ever need. That is not true, unfortunately. Even as Christians, God's children, you know this very well. We deal with physical problems, physical ailments, emotional problems, financial struggles, marriage struggles, we still live in a world of sin. We're not immune to those things in life. The difference, though, is this. He says, look, God's rest doesn't mean you get a pass on all the physical stuff. It doesn't mean you'll never deal with cancer. It doesn't mean you'll never deal with the flu. It doesn't mean you'll never deal with death. We will. Rather, it's this. God provides a rest for people's souls. It's an eternal rest. It's a rest that says this, even if I were to be stricken with cancer, as terrible as that would be, as much as I would hate that, as much as I would pray to God for physical healing, and, and that, those would be great things to do, we should do that and pray for people's healings. At the end of the day, however, we have to be like Jesus in the garden that says, but Lord, your will be done. Even if this cannot pass, your will be done. How can a person still live a life of peace even if they have a physical cancer or physical issues going on? 
The author here is telling us because they know they're resting spiritually in the Lord through Jesus Christ. Their soul is forgiven. My body can be destroyed in this life. It could be utterly destroyed and mangled, yet my soul should rest in. But I know that when this physical life is over, I have eternal rest there. That propels us through the physical problems of this life. So don't think that he means, well, God offers just this physical rest and then all of life works out. That's not it at all. It's spiritual, eternal rest through the Lord Jesus Christ. So the final point is this. What is the challenge of God's rest? Well, here's his challenge in verses 11 through 13. And it's going to sound oxymoronic. It's going to sound contradictory, so let me explain it. The challenge of God's rest, work hard to rest. So work hard to rest. Well, that's actually what he says. There's a little bit of a wordplay in the Greek language that this was written in. So look at this with me, if you would, in verse 11. He says, let us therefore strive to enter that rest. Well, what rest? Back up to verse 10, and he defines it. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works, just as God did from his. So entering God's rest is when you know in your soul through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, you know you're forgiven of your sins, and you're now living in a state, a spiritual condition, where you know that you do not have to work to earn your salvation. You don't have to earn God's happiness with your life. Because there's nothing you can do to earn it. You simply rest in faith that he just loves you and will give you eternal life through Jesus Christ. So that is to basically say, I'm no longer working for my salvation. I'm resting. Verse 11 then, then he says, so let us therefore strive to enter that rest. The word strive is the key. The word strive means to do something with intense effort and motivation. So it's ironic because he says, Enter God's rest, and rest is the opposite of working. You've stopped your work. But now he turns around and says, well, here's what you should do. Here's the challenge before us today. Work really hard at making sure you enter God's rest. The word strive means, we would say, give it your all. Press on with everything you have to reach the goal. What's the goal? Entering God's rest. So again, sounds ironic, but that's his point is enter God's rest, which is stopping to work, but I need to work really hard to make sure I'm in God's rest. Here's what I think he's really getting at. We need to make sure that we actually are in God's rest. Now, I'm in God's rest through the faith of the Lord Jesus Christ, my faith in Jesus. I'm in God's rest. I'm safe from my sins, and I don't work for my salvation. That's being in God's rest. Well, what's the work part? I need to actually have some self-effort to make sure that my faith is real. I need to make sure I'm actually authentically, genuinely in God's rest. For example, 2 Corinthians 13.5, I want to read this to you. The Apostle Peter says this, examine yourselves, he's talking to Christians, examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. So think about that. Paul, I said Peter, I think, Paul wrote this. Paul was saying to a group of believers, you need to do something, Christians. Have faith in the Lord, but always be checking yourself to make sure your faith is real and that you're really in the Lord. Examine yourselves. Put yourself to a test to see whether you're in the faith. Or have you possibly believed in other things? Maybe you've believed in a particular church or a particular pastor. Well, those things are not faith in Jesus. They won't get you to heaven. So he says, examine yourself to make sure you're in the faith. Then he goes on, test yourselves, or do you not realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you? 
Do you know that Christ is in you? He says, unless indeed you fail to meet the test. So yes, I rest in the Lord through faith. I don't work for my salvation, but I must put forth some effort, some work to make sure my faith is real, that I'm actually in the faith. The apostle Peter says this in Second Peter chapter 1, verse 10. He says something similar. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. That's your salvation. Confirm your salvation, for if you practice these qualities, you will never fail. For in this way there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. But he has the same point as Paul. He says, Christians, always be evaluating your life, checking yourself, putting your faith to the test, and asking, is it real? Have I really come to real faith in the Lord Jesus Christ? So that is the work hard part. Work hard at testing your faith to make sure you're resting, which is not working for your faith. Why do you do this? Because he says in verse 11, so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. Always, I must be, and you must always be checking our faith. Is it real? Is it valid? Is it genuine? So that I don't be like those people in Israel in the Old Testament, and they failed to enter God's rest. They missed it. How did they miss it? By unbelief, doubt. They lacked faith. So the question before us would be, am I in God's rest through my faith in the Lord Jesus Christ? Have I found rest and forgiveness for my sins and rest for my soul through the Lord Jesus Christ? And if the answer is yes, then he would say, but we must always be evaluating that faith. Is it genuine? Is it real? Have we maybe put our faith in the Lord Jesus when we were six, seven, eight, nine years old? We were a child. And, and I've encountered this when I was a youth pastor. Sometimes people would come and I'm not sure I'm saved. I'm not sure I'm really a Christian. And when you hear their story, they prayed a prayer at a vacation Bible school. They went forward and prayed a prayer. But they were a child and they sort of felt this pressure to just simply say the words. And they said, oh, I must be a Christian. But as they grew, they began to realize, I don't think I was ever really in the faith. Had they have grown up and, and still thought they were a Christian, they would have never been evaluating their faith. But thank God that they were. That's a small example of what he's getting at. Always be evaluating your faith. What has your faith been put in? If it's something else besides Jesus and his death for you, it's not a valid faith. Real quick, and I'll end on this. He gives a final warning in verses 12 through 13. And he says, no one can avoid God. This is the final warning. No one can avoid God. In verse 12, he says, The word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intention of the heart. I have taught this verse over and over over the years. It's taught in seminaries. It's taught everywhere because it seems as though he's giving us this theological treatise about the Bible because the word of God is living and it's active and it, it pierces the soul. And, and he does, but he doesn't. And here's what I mean. Only in preparing the sermon now I realize something. The context of verse 12, he mentions it right here at the end of verse 11 on purpose. Verse 11 said, check yourself to make sure you're in the faith. Why does he randomly then seem to enter into this theological essay on the Bible is living and active. It's the word of God and it pierces the soul. It judges the thought. Why does he do that? I believe for this reason, because of verse 11. He says, are you resting in the Lord through faith in Jesus Christ? If the answer is yes, are you checking and evaluating that faith to make sure it's genuine and real? And I believe he ends with verse 12 as a, actually a type of a warning. Because no soul will avoid God. 
No soul will avoid God's judgment. And he starts with the word of God. It's living. That word living is actually where we get our word biology, biological life. He says the word of God, which words are spoken or they're written down. We don't picture words as living things. But he says right here, God's word, it's as if it has biological life to it. It's a living thing. And he uses the present tense. It is still alive today. God's word is being given out and it touches and it impacts people's souls. In that way, it's like a living organism working through and in people. He says it's active. That means it, it is effective. Whenever God's word goes out, it's not a dud. It always has an impact, positive or negative. It's living, it's active. He says it's able to pierce the division of our soul and our spirit. The word soul is where we get our word psyche, the psychological part of you. The word spirit is just what it means, our, our spirit, the spiritual part of us that would enter into heaven. The word of God touches every part of humanity. There's no part of us that the word of God cannot touch and impact. He's saying here, it's like a sword that can cut straight to your bones and your marrow in your bones. It can go the deepest that anything can go to touch our souls and speak to us and convict us. And he says this, it discerns the thoughts and intentions of the heart. That's the warning, I believe. The word discern here is actually has a legal terminology. It was the word used for a judge that would actually render a legal verdict on a case. So he says here, God's word is actually acting on us like a judge saying, this is the part of your life that is guilty, or this is a part of your life that is not guilty, and you should keep doing this. It convicts, it moves on us, it renders verdict for the things that we have going on in our lives. So in that way, he's sort of saying, we will never avoid God. You cannot do anything and it be hidden from God. You can't read God's word and it not work on you. It must work on you in some way. In verse 13, he says, No creature is hidden from the sight of the Lord, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. So I think he kind of ends on a challenge for us. He says, Look, are you in God's rest through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ? If yes, are you checking that faith? Are you testing it? And then the final charge for every person is this, Christian or non, make no mistake about it, no person can hide from God or avoid God or trick God. No one will be able to slide into heaven and sort of skirt by and God be like, oh, I didn't know that they were here. I guess they belong here. That will never happen because God's word pierces the bone marrow down to the deepest part of the soul and his eyes see everything that could possibly be hidden. Everything he says is laid out before him. And he says this phrase to end it, we, we must give an account. It's as if we have to make a case before God. And I believe he said that on purpose to mean something like this. We will all stand before the Lord one day and have to give an account. An account may be as simple as him saying, why should I let you into my eternal glory? We had better be able to have a good answer. If the answer is anything other than because your son told me I could be here, well, how did he say he could be here? Because he died for my sins and I have faith in his sacrifice. And he rose again, promising me eternal life. If it's, well, because my grandparents went to that church for 30 years or my dad was a preacher or because I went to vacation Bible school when I was seven and I prayed this prayer or because I give to lots of charities and I help people at Christmas time and I share my food or whatever. Those are nice and great things, but they will not be how someone can stand before God and not face his judgment. Only by entering his rest through the Lord Jesus Christ can someone rest in the Lord.
says, I'm going to let Bruce and his team come, and I just want to end with that final charge. Are you in God's rest? Is your soul at rest because you know you're forgiven? You know Jesus has paid for your sins. And if yes, are you checking it? Is it genuine? Do you know beyond shadow of a doubt that Jesus is your Lord and Savior? And children of God, if that is true, then I challenge us, find rest in your daily life in the Lord, not in other things of this life, only in Jesus. Let me close in prayer. Lord, thank you that I have the privilege to preach and speak your word. And I ask that in some way, Holy Spirit, you've touched hearts and minds today. And if someone is here and they're not sure, they haven't been sure about what it means to be a child of yours, would they see you, Holy Spirit, would you convict them that it's by having faith in Jesus for the forgiveness of their sins? And for children of God here, Father, would you help us to rest in you each and every day, not rest in our finances or the things this world can offer us, but rest that no matter what happens down here, we belong to Jesus. In your son's name I pray.